Hello, and welcome to part two of episode four of Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint for the future, a podcast from the UCL Sustainable Development Goals Initiative. I'm Professor Monica Lackenpaul. And I'm Dr. Preeti Parikh. So today we're joined by an amazing UCL master student and also a COP26 Jamaican delegate, Janelle Williams. Janelle focuses on nuclear techniques to understand the coastal environment, supporting Jamaica's efforts to achieve the SDGs. So welcome Janelle to you and really delighted to have you with us. Can you just start by telling us a little bit more about your background and what your area of research really involves? Hi Monica, thank you so much for having me. Yes, my name is Janelle Williams and I am a climate change master student here at UCL. Incidentally, my background was in engineering, specifically ocean engineering, where I kind of focused on looking at how we could capture wave energy from systems um, to generate energy. That career plan sort of, you know, evolved into more of an investigative role where I've been utilizing nuclear techniques to study the environment, specifically the coastal environment, as you mentioned. Now that I'm doing my master's in climate change, I'm looking forward to applying nuclear and isotopic techniques to really you know, delve into understanding how climate change is affecting these ecosystems that we much would like to protect. I'd like to ask you really about how you think the SDGs are perceived in your home country. Do you think they're really well known in Jamaica and the Caribbean more broadly? I believe so, even more so in recent times. When you think about our Professor Michael Taylor, which led the charge for 1.5 to stay alive, that really resonated in Jamaica and even more so in the Caribbean because it kind of put into perspective how climate change on a hold was being affected in our region. And I think that really stuck. Secondly, we developed what was known as Vision 2030, which a lot of Jamaicans are aware of. I think the disconnect comes when trying to understand development as well as addressing climate change. I think that is more of the, the, the separation more so than being aware of what is going on with the SDGs. Janelle, it's always a pleasure to speak with fellow engineers. And you mentioned how SDGs are perceived in your home country. How do the SDGs inspire you in your area of research at UCL? Pursuing climate change at UCL was important for me because when I've heard about, you know, climate change and how it's going to impact us globally, a lot of the conversation was being had in developed, much larger countries. And while climate change is a global aspect, the Caribbean region stands to, to be affected in a, in a way that many countries and many regions may not face. Um, when you think about our natural resources being the part that actually helps us to develop, but also the part that's going to be hit the most with climate change, we have to address things in a slightly different way and a more urgent way. So I pursued this degree thinking that I was going to be able to you know, lend a, a more impactful hand with research in my country, you know, to really understand how things were going to affect our country, as well as how we can help to address things from a mitigation aspect, an adaptation aspect, and kind of put the region on a global map in terms of how we, we address this situation. Janelle, you make a very interesting point on how developed and developing nations are on very different pathways to address the sustainable development goals and climate action and how different parts of the world will have different challenges to tackle. Definitely. I mean, you have 17 SDGs and 
each country, each region will, will choose to address them at different rates, at different scales. And we have to probably address them in a slightly different way from other countries. So we have to think about our coastlines like, or coral reefs are something that we have to protect. So it's a, it's a nice dynamic that has to be considered, but to, to play the part, you have to kind of understand what's going on in your own country and region to begin with. I think that's so important what you're saying there, and it's something we picked on before really about you know what is happening in local areas, what's the local context about what's happening, and, and really engaging in partnership with the citizens who live within that local context as well. We don't really and shouldn't be parachuting in from the outside and trying to make change in other countries. We really have to listen. And I think, you know, this is a really good example of that. Listen to what people are saying about their own context within which they're living in their own landscapes, which they're living, and then work in partnership with them to really try and bring about change and give a voice to the individuals, which is why it's so great to have you here with us today. So just wanted to pick up on that a little bit more. So we know that small island developing countries like Jamaica are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? How are they more vulnerable? And are the SDGs really helpful in addressing these issues? So for the region, one of our biggest challenges is is looking at how it's affecting biodiversity. Because as I mentioned earlier, it is the cornerstone for a big part of our GDP. When one thinks of Jamaica or the Caribbean, you think about, you know, nice tropical beaches, you're coming for our environment, incidentally. And so if climate change ruins that or, or causes damage through sea level rise, you know, increased tropical storms for which we cannot, you know, recoup, then it becomes a problem. Then we don't have tourism. We don't have a good fishing industry. We're unable to export our products at the scale we've been able to. And so we're hit from an environmental standpoint as well as an economic one. But the SDGs, while they are numerous, I think they give a baseline for what we need to be looking at. It's my understanding it's not supposed to be exhaustive, but it's supposed to almost provide a template of the things that we're supposed to be considering as we're moving towards a more sustainable and more um, balanced environment. And so while it's not exhaustive, each country takes that template and adapts it to its own needs. When you think about, let's say, the climate action um, it outlines some of the goals that needs to be addressed, but a lot of it ties into even the life below water SDG goal as well. And then if you look at our country's vision 2030, it takes that template and it refines it to the needs for our country. So I don't think there's an issue with the SDGs themselves, but I think they need to work in tandem with a country's national adaptation plan or their version of a vision 2030 plan or 2050 plan to move forward. And it's interesting what you say about tourism, isn't it? It's like this, it's a, a double-edged sword, really. Tourism is very important and it's sometimes a bedrock of the economy because you want to attract people to enable people to have jobs and to have the economy moving. But on the other hand, I suppose having people coming in can also damage the landscape as well. So it's, it's, it's that, you know, you want tourism, but you also want the tourists to be respectable tourists and respect your landscape and your country to which they're coming as well. Absolutely. And it's possible. I mean, we've seen some semblance of responsible, sustainable ecotourism happening in countries like Costa Rica. While it's not perfect, um, we do see where it is possible to have a balanced approach. Chanel, you were a delegate at COP26 in Glasgow, which we attended together. 
you are very modest and you're not going to say it, so I'll have to say it for you. So Janelle not only spent days and nights supporting the Jamaican delegation, in her spare time, she also volunteered to play in a charity soccer match to raise awareness about climate change. <laughs> yes, it actually was a very good experience. Um, it was my very first COP. And uh, I felt honored to be a part of the Jamaica delegation as a part of the youth arm. So yes, it was a very fun experience as well as to do something fun like play football, which I haven't done in years to help to raise awareness for climate change. So that was a fun experience. And at COP, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about the SDGs from your experience there? You know, incidentally, the the most (laughs) surprising thing was kind of seeing how science and politics go at play. I think that whole experience kind of opened my eyes to see how evidence can be presented, the facts can be there, but then there's the negotiations and the play with words and the play with trying to figure out what's best, what's not best, and countries and regions debating how to address something that what I thought we all agreed (laughs) was a problem. So I think it kind of gave me a sense of appreciation for what ministers in environment and politicians go through at these conferences. But it was definitely eye-opening. It's not as clear-cut as you would like it to be. And Janelle, I mean, in those discussions that you had with very important stakeholders, do you think the SDGs were covered as extensively as they should be? No, of course not. I mean, there's definitely more that could be done, definitely more that could be said. I mean, when you think about... Um, One of the things that our region is fighting for, like loss and damage, most of the conversations have always happened around mitigation and adaptation. But you're considering something that only certain regions are suffering from it. It's hard to bring that into a global conversation. Unfortunately, the SDGs is set in a global mindset and doesn't necessarily take into consideration nuances from different regions. And I think in that way, it can be limiting. Absolutely, Janelle. And earlier we were speaking with Mark and Ilan, who were also commenting on the lack of understanding of local drivers and needs. Yes, and they're they're very right with that. But it also is difficult. The drivers and the needs for different regions and different countries change. Even within the Caribbean, we have sub-regional dynamics that happen with our environment, how we're affected. While we do have similarities, how things change vary and the, the region isn't that big. So when you think about that, even on a global scale, it's, it's hard to put that into an SDG framework, which is why I think that other things like the national adaptation plans or even how we have these conversations at conferences like COP need to not be set in stone. One needs to consider, okay, this is just a template. How does that fit in here? How does that fit in here? And funding organizations need to consider that as well. So Janelle, you're one of our students, our master students at UCL, and we're always excited to hear from you about your work. So you've been wonderful at giving your perspective on the SDGs, but actually I'd like to really drill you down to, can you tell us a little bit about your work, what you do, what you've been doing? You mentioned the wind, you mentioned uh, nuclear techniques. Could you just take me through that a little bit and, and really share with us about your own work that you've been doing? So prior to coming to UCL, I worked at the International Center for Environmental and Nuclear Sciences quite a mouthful. Basically, it's the only nuclear facility in Jamaica where we apply nuclear techniques to study 
a myriad of parameters and my focus was on environment, specifically marine and atmospheric. So some of the work that I've been doing is looking at how sargassum had been affecting our coastlines. People were considering um, using it for value-added resources. What's the makeup of the sargassum? Is it possible to be used for food? So kind of taking a problem and using it for solution. I've also been using nuclear techniques to study pollutant dynamics, especially in the Kingston Harbor and Discovery Bay. We're trying to increase our MPAs across the island, but having a baseline understanding of what the pollutants are, the potential sources of those pollutants, and how we can feed that into policy and get things to be changed, especially as we are trying to mitigate things. So that's where my analysis have been focused. We're currently working on a four-year urban atmospheric study, again, using nuclear techniques to study how pollutants have been moving through the air and in coastal environments. It's a myriad of things. Um, unfortunately, that's how things are in the Caribbean. There's a small group of people to work on a lot of projects, but it's interesting because it helps us to gather data points, something that the UK is very fond to have. Um, you guys have a lot of research facilities, lots of data stemming from decades, so you can see where things changed, how things changed, and I think that's what we're trying to do in the Caribbean and what our research facility has been trying to do as well. That's fantastic. And yes, uh, we do like data, I'm afraid. Numbers, numbers, numbers is how it goes. Sometimes it can be a lot of numbers to think through. But, you know, you, you really talked about, you know, small number of people to do a lot of projects, you know, having that energy and excitement and passion really is, I, I, I must think, what drives you really to really what you said, move from problems to solutions. And pollution is one of those key areas that we all really need to think about a lot more because it affects our bodies, our health um, and our well-being really. And I don't think we really talk about it enough. So just to pick up on something you did say a little bit earlier about ecotourism in Costa Rica. Have you learned any lessons from other countries, really, that you could share with us? I know that a huge part of ecotourism is getting buy-in from local communities. One of the things that Costa Rica is able to do is kind of get the population to be educated, to be aware of the value of their environment, so much so that they're willing and able to protect it. When you enable them and they have buy-in, when tourists come, they're able to not only allow them to explore the country, but they're also able to pass on that knowledge and perhaps encourage tourists to also, you know, value and protect their environment as well. I think in Jamaica, that's one of the disconnects sometimes. We're focused on development. We're focused on trying to get as much out of something as possible. And so that's sometimes to the detriment of or coastal resources. When we think about wanting to protect mangroves, for instance, we have government funding going into protecting our mangroves. But on the flip side, we're also, you know, granting permissions for acres of mangroves to be destroyed to build another hotel. So it, it, the, the scales don't always balance. And I think sometimes while we want to move towards development, sometimes we have to think about things more long term. Those lessons, I think, are what we need to probably <laughs> pick up more on. COVID has taught us something, isn't it? We should learn from each other and we should learn across the world. And I think sometimes we have to be very 
humble as well and think, well, what is somebody else doing better than us? And how can we use that information to improve what we're doing within our own regions, within our own areas? And I particularly am really interested in this bi-directional knowledge exchange or knowledge, global knowledge exchange. And, you know, maybe we have to think about how to harness that a bit more effectively than we currently are doing. And, and just moving on from that is, you know, young people, young people are really the source of um, advocacy, the source of, I call it the noise, the source of making a difference in the world. And some particular topics really resonate more with young people probably than they do with others, um, such as, you know, we've talked about pollution, but particularly plastic pollution. You'll see a lot of um, pictures about plastic pollution and young people thinking about what can they do. And I've seen some wonderful pieces of art, actually, where they've used plastic bottles to create art, artifacts, to really have that dialogue with the world about the problem with pollution. But climate seems to receive the most attention amongst youth activists. Why do you actually think that's so? I think incidentally, it might be because we're actually feeling it the most. I think at one point, if you think about 30 years ago, the conversation about climate was very science-centric. It, was, it almost felt like it was in a bubble. And now it's sort of gone into the public sphere. The language has changed. It made it more accessible. And then there are regions that it went from being some theoretical, abstract, seemingly abstract idea to something that was very real. And so I think that's the part of it that resonates with them. Like, hold on a second. This is actually happening. Why is nothing being done? The same thing happens with other avenues as well. When you think about stuff like inequality or gender equality as well, those conversations are a lot louder than they used to be. I think our generation and the younger generation, in fact, they're a lot braver. They're trying to see things for what they are and they're genuinely trying to make a difference. And I think that's a good thing. A lot of it also, I think, is stemmed from the language changing. Scientific information when I was younger, sometimes it's a bit hard to navigate. And I think that has changed in recent times and that helps people to be more involved. Yeah, words are so important, aren't they? Too many words make it too complex. Too many words make it too inaccessible. And actually, as academics, we are in danger of putting people off because we try and create these complicated words that you actually wonder if they mean something or not. And why can't we just be a bit more simple? So just as a young person, again, if you were going to be an activist today, or you are an activist, I presume, in your own way of, of advocating for, for climate and pollution, what sort of activities do you enjoy doing or think are important in doing to raise the dialogue about these issues? Yes, I'd like to think I'm an activist in my own way. And I think I approach it maybe slightly different <laughs> from some people. I try to st start things at home. I, that's how I tend to approach things. That's how I tend to lead. I, I have these conversations in my community and branch out. So I live in Kingston, which is basically like an urban jungle, so to speak. So there's not always a lot of green spaces in, in complexes and apartments. And so one of the things I had started was, you know, doing a little bit of urban farming. We don't have a huge backyard, but you know, growing seeds, planting, you know, growing as many things as I could in that small square space. And then I got the little kids in my community involved, got my parents involved. And so they started to tell their friends. And in that way, I think is how I try to be involved in the conversation to educate people about what's going on in is that I try to do it myself, try to get people interested and so that they'll be curious enough and, and interested enough to pass on the knowledge. I think the same thing happens with diving. I mean, 
if you go on Instagram and you see really nice dive videos and dive pictures and you get to see a pristine ecosystem at play, it's kind of hard not to be you know, infected by that. And so you're curious, you want to protect that. And I think in that way is how I try to be involved. Chanel, this is so inspiring and, I, and I'm totally on board with your message of climate action begins from home. In a way, you alluded earlier to the fact that the climate science is now accepted and people are actively engaged in discussions over how to better address climate change and how to better address the sustainable development goals. So in a way, those agendas are given for us. But as you know, the sustainable development goals expire in 2030. So what would you like to see them replaced with? I think a part of the problem right now is that though they're due to expire, I think countries are not necessarily on target to meet the plans for 2030. And I think post 2030, what needs to happen is hopefully we would have sort of figured out where the hindrances are and what is replaced is sort of a regional docket, something that identifies what the problems are and how we move forward, whether regionally or sub-regionally. And I think that probably would be a better idea. Um, It's more refined, it's more goal-oriented, and I I think that it will also help us to meet a lot of the, the goals that we had set forth from even just the recent COP. So Janelle, you're suggesting that we look at local priorities and streamline the goals after 2030 to focus on those which need further attention. Yes, I believe so. I think we need a lot of sub-regional dockets and so not a umbrella um, SDG set of goals as we have them now, but something that is more refined and regional specific. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really exciting hearing from you and we always want to hear from our students. You've really inspired me to go home, do things locally and think regionally, nationally and globally, as well as look at different countries with a different lens. Looking through that lens in my own home and what I do to contribute is something I'll take away from today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Monica. It was a pleasure. And thank you, Preeti, as well. It was lovely talking to you guys. You've been listening to Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint for the future. This episode was presented by me, Professor Monica Lackampal. And me, Dr. Preeti Parikh. And produced by the UCL SDGs Initiative, with support from UCL Global Engagement and edited by Frontier. Our guest today was Janelle Williams. If you'd like to hear more podcasts by UCL, subscribe to UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts. Join us next time. We'll be back soon.